Welcome everyone to Are You A Robot? This is a series where we aim to explore some of the greatest questions that come through in AI and related technologies. I am your host, Dimitrios Brinkman, and the way that we are trying to tackle some of these questions that are coming through in AI these days is we're getting the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to speak with me about what they're doing and how they see the landscape, what exactly they advise as far as best practices and moving forward in this space. So the conversation doesn't stop here. I want to make it very clear that if you are into this at all, we have a Slack community and it is incredible what is happening there. There is a plethora of smart people, much smarter than myself, that are in there. They're sharing their thoughts. They're sharing their views. So if you are interested in continuing the conversation, please jump into that Slack community. You can find the link below. And last but not least, everyone knows that we have an incredible sponsor. If you've listened to this at all before, you know that they have been sponsoring us from the get-go. Ethics Grade is an ESG ratings company, which basically means that they're a non-financial or that they measure the non-financial impact that companies have on the world. And it's an exciting day right now because they've just put out their first cohort of data into the public domain. So if you're curious about comparing the AI governance between different companies, such as how good Tesla is at its AI ethics compared to Toyota or how TikTok matches up against Twitter or Alibaba versus Amazon, definitely go and check out their website. They've got all of that information up there. You can have a play with it and I think you will enjoy it. So Ethics Grade, again, you can check them out at ethicsgrade.io or just click the link in the description below. That's all for now. Today, we're talking with Callum. Let's hear what he has to say in this a little controversial uh, conversation that we had. All right. Enjoy. Are you a robot? All right, Callum. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Today, we are going to be talking a lot about jobs in the future. And I know this is something that you spend a lot of time thinking about and pondering, wondering what is going to happen. So before we jump into the juicy stuff, maybe we should figure out how you ended up getting to this place where you ponder these kind of questions so much. Yeah. I have always been interested in artificial intelligence. I've always thought that one day humans would create what these days is known as an artificial general intelligence and AI with all the cognitive abilities of an adult human and that that would go on to become a super intelligence. But until 1999, I assumed that wouldn't happen in my lifetime and not in the lifetime of anybody then alive. It wouldn't happen for thousands of years. Then I read a book by a very controversial man called Ray Kurzweil. The book was, Are, Are We Spiritual Machines? And he made me consider seriously the possibility that AGI might arrive in my lifetime or, say, my, my son's lifetime. And that was quite a startling moment. I was 
uh, busy in a career then, and I stayed that way until 2011. And then I had the opportunity to retire, and I started to spend a lot more time reading and then writing about the future of AI. Uh, I first wrote a novel called Pandora's Brain, and then I wrote two non-fiction books, Surviving AI and The Economic Singularity. And I mm. came to believe, and still believe, that this century there will be two singularities. A singularity is a point in a process where a variable becomes infinite. Uh, it's a term in maths and physics. And it's been applied in human affairs um, since the 50s. John von Neumann was apparently the first to apply it to human affairs. And it simply means a point where everything changes because of a dramatic development. And so these two singularities are the point when most humans become unemployable. And then the second one is when we create the first superintelligence uh, and then everything changes. And um, yeah, so that's probably enough of an introduction as to how I <laughs> became <laughs> thinking about all that's these things. That's one hell of an introduction, Callum. <laughs> started off hot. I'll try to be more concise in future. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was perfect. I mean, there's so much I want to dive into there. And I think the main thing probably that jumps to mind is why were you convinced that after you read that book, you talked about reading Ray's book and you said, whoa, this might actually happen in my lifetime. What were some arguments that made you realize that or made you think that that is possible? It's very simple. I hadn't taken seriously the power of exponential change prior to reading that book. Mm. I expect a lot of people are groaning now. Uh, Exponential progress is astonishingly powerful. Uh, you know, the, the, the classic example is if you take 30 normal steps, you will travel about 30 meters. If you could take 30 exponential steps so that your first step is one meter, your second step is two meters, your third is four and your fourth is eight and so on, uh, you'd go to the moon. But in fact, you'd go to the moon on your 20, 29th step and your 30th step would bring you all the way back. Each step in an exponential process is equivalent to the sum of all the previous steps. It's unbelievably powerful. It's why we have supercomputers in our pockets um, when computers really only got started just after the Second World War. And you project that forward, you have machines which are astonishingly capable. Now, Kurzweil takes a slightly simplistic approach. He, he seems to think that if machines get to the point where they have the same processing capability of a human brain, they'll be able to do what a human brain can do. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he really is that, um, I don't think his view really is that simple, but, uh, and, and it's almost certainly not true. There's an awful lot of clever work required to figure out how the, the software works and how the systems are configured. But broadly speaking, if you have machines which are, say, 10, 20, a million times more, more powerful, as in they can do that much more processing than a human brain, you're going to have machines which will be able to replicate what a human brain can do at some point. Um, it's almost inevitable. Now, of course, exponential growth might stop. Uh, lots of people say that Moore's law is grinding to a halt. I don't think that's true. I think it's just changing. It always has changed throughout its uh, short history. Uh, and it's continuing to change. So I, do, I think we're going to keep having exponential growth. And therefore, I think we will have AGI uh, in this century. And I think well before that, we will have machines which can do pretty much, well, they can do the things that almost all of us do for money. I do mm -hmm. think that will come considerably before AGI. That's another controversial issue. Um, 
And I think that when that point comes, we have to accept that humans won't do jobs. If humans don't do jobs, we need a different way of getting money. And that's the thing that I spend most of my time thinking about. And so in your mind, it's anything that anyone is doing right now. It's not like, oh, these low-level tasks that like we hear a lot about uh, bus drivers or taxi drivers because autonomous cars are coming. But for you, it's no, there's no one is safe from this revolution? Not no one. I think that there will be human jobs uh, that machines can't do until machines become conscious, until machines become AGIs. For instance, deciding the goal of organizations and of societies, that's not something we would delegate to machines, I don't think. Uh, that would remain in the purview of humans. And anything that requires consciousness. So I have a view that uh, art is the expression, art is the use of a craft, a skill, to express something interesting or important about the nature of being human, or at least of being conscious. And you really can't do that unless you're conscious. Therefore, unconscious machines can't create art. Now, not everybody would agree with that definition, but it seems a decent one to me. So therefore, artists can't be automated. However, uh, the great majority of us can't be the person or people who set the goals for organizations or for societies, um, except in the sense that democracies are comprised of people who do that. Um, but we can't all be leaders and we can't all be artists. Mm-hmm. Up to a point, we can't all be artists. We can't all be paid artists. So therefore, I think most people will be unemployable. And I think you know our big job for the next few decades is to figure out how to make that a really, really good situation, which I think we can. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit more. I just want to pump the brakes on the artist piece because that I find fascinating as an artist, a self-proclaimed artist myself. You know, the thing about the art, right now we're seeing a lot of music being made by machines. Like AI is making music and AI is making... There's any kind of style of painting, you can just put a picture into a website and get it in Rembrandt style or Van Gogh style. And that is being made by AI too. So for you, that is an art. Correct. And so it's because it hasn't, it doesn't have the, for lack of a better word, it doesn't have the soul behind it. There's much better words than that because I don't think we have souls. But um, yeah, I I absolutely agree with where you're coming from. It doesn't have the expression. It doesn't express anything about the nature of being conscious or of being human. And so the other thing that I was wondering about is that humans at the end of the day right now, we're still programming the machines to create that art, whether it's us putting a picture into the... Uh, into the website to get the Rembrandt-looking photo, or it is us saying, hey, I want a, a certain type of music. We're still doing things behind that. Do you feel like that still is going to continue? The humans behind the machines directing? I think we stopped programming them a long time ago. I mean, machines now create uh, new Rembrandts, for instance, and this is two or three years old now, but there was a Rembrandt, created, a picture created, which was put in front of a bunch of leading art historians, experts on Rembrandt, and they <clears throat> could not distinguish it from a Rembrandt. They thought maybe a new Rembrandt had been discovered. <laughs> and 
what the machine did was simply to look at a lot of existing Rembrandts and, and learn his style. So there wasn't any programming going on there. The machine was, uh, you know, it, it's not quite that simple. It didn't just look at a bunch of Rembrandts. It was, it was trained, it was set up, and I dare say that took a lot of man hours to do, human hours to do, but um, it wasn't programmed per se, it learned. And that's, you know, that, that's characteristic of this new type of machine that we have since 2012, since the Big Bang in machine learning. We don't program these things anymore, they learn. Well, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is just the, the people that are training these machine learning models and they're the ones that are setting out to create this, whatever it is, X, this machine that does X or Y, they're the ones that I see as the people behind the machines. Do you feel like that's still going to happen or is it going to get to this point in your eyes where the machines are just going to decide for themselves what they want to create and how they want to create it? Good question, and I don't know. I think it'll be a while before a machine that is, say, trained to play chess decides, hey, I'm bored with this. I now want to train myself to paint Rembrandts. Yeah. I guess that could happen, but I think it's, it'll be a way off. I'm not sure if that happens before we get to AGI. Uh, but there's the other question implicit in your question of whether the machine learning experts, and that's, that's a really highly skilled job, are they the artists behind the machine? Mm. And I think they're not. Uh, I don't think that knowing how to show a machine thousands of pictures of Rembrandts and setting the algorithm up, doing the training right, making sure the data is consistent and so on, I don't think that is art. They might disagree and I'd be probably willing to be persuaded, but it doesn't seem to me to be art. Yeah. This I find fascinating. I mean, we've talked about it a few times on here and one past guest put it that since a machine can't do it spontaneously, like you can't just all of a sudden spontaneously say, I'm going to paint this sunset. A machine, if it ever says, I'm going to paint a sunset, it's because it's explicitly, explicitly been told to paint the sunset, right? So that the spontaneity is what uh, one of our past guests, Dylan, said is the art. That is the, the human component of it. So I know we didn't come here to talk about that. We got on a little bit of a tangent, and which I absolutely love talking about that stuff. But let's, let's get into the jobs section because there, and this is a huge piece of society that, is looking at this and wondering how this is going to pan out, right? Because it is very important that, as you say, we get it right. We do it in a way that is enjoyable for everyone as jobs start to disintegrate. So in your mind, do you have a, a plan for that? Or are you just raising the flag like, hey, we need to start thinking about it? Uh, do I have a plan? Very, in very, very broad terms. I have a, an idea of what the desirable end state is, and that is a world in which machines do all the jobs and humans do whatever we want to do. So we spend our time learning, uh, conversing, playing sports, exercising our faculties, having fun. A lot of us will get drunk a lot of the time, and that's okay. Uh, watching movies. But learning and in making new inventions and making new art. Um, 
I think a, a second renaissance is what we should be aiming for. Mm. And a lot of people worry uh, that if we do get to that post-jobs world, that we'll all get bored or suffer existential despair because of lack of meaning. And I don't think that's the problem. I think humans are very good at finding interesting things to do. Uh, I think that is proved by at least three classes of people. One is aristocrats, who mostly had no jobs. Um, we're all watching Bridgerton now. And they don't have jobs and they're not existentially bored. Uh, the second class is comfortably off retired people. Uh, and I know quite a few of them because I'm that sort of age. And they are really busy, really happy. They do not want another job. Thank you very much. And those people are the worst people ever to be put in that position because they've spent their entire lives being trained and training themselves to look for the next job, to look for the next hoop to jump through, to look for the next big challenge. And then suddenly, age somewhere between 50 and 70, they get told, OK, that's all over. Now just go and have fun. You'd think, crikey, you know, they've been trained in how not to do that. And, and yet they all manage it. No, they don't all manage it, but most do. And then the third group is children. You know, show me a child who thinks they need a job to have fun. So I don't think that existential despair through lack of meaning is a problem. The problem is money. The problem is clearly, by definition, if most of us are not doing jobs, we haven't got an income. So where do we get the money from? And people jump up and down and say that universal basic income is the answer, but it's not affordable. And we're doing this giant experiment in UBI right now. Uh, where governments are handing out vast amounts of money to keep everybody afloat while there are no jobs for many of us because uh, we can't be face to face and therefore we can't do a lot of the jobs we used to do. Uh, and we know that it's going to rack up an amazing debt, which we, you know, our kids are going to have to pay off. So that, to me, that's you know, final proof, if anybody needed it, that universal basic income isn't affordable unless there's a massive change to the economy. And the, the change to the economy, which I think could make it affordable, is if automation, cheap energy, and the use of AI to make everything efficient could reduce the cost of all the goods and services that you need for a really good life close to zero. So if everything becomes almost free, then the transfer of money from, the transfer of some sort of asset, whether it be income or wealth, from those who have it, i.e. those who own the machines and those who own penthouses in, in Mayfair and uh, on Park Lane, Park Avenue, uh, transfer from the rich to everybody else becomes not onerous, becomes feasible. Um, and I call this state where most people are not doing jobs and there is a massive transfer of, of uh, a massive economic transfer. I call it fully automated luxury capitalism um, because it's fully automated. It's luxury because everybody has everything they need and it's capitalism because Capitalism is a fantastic mechanism for uh, for optimizing production and making making wealth, and we should carry on. We, we should keep that. We should retain that. Wow. So, do you not think that when we are all in a state of this luxury capitalism, like if it were me? I would still want to fly private or have all of these incredible luxuries, but everyone is not afforded that. So we're, we're going to have to be told what we can and can't have. And so it's just like 
you're seeing the basics being met and then nobody is allowed these privileges anymore? How does no, that work? No, absolutely not. And, and it's a really important point. Um, under an alternative proposal, which you could call fully automated luxury communism, you're right, everybody would have the same. It would be centrally controlled and you wouldn't be able to earn luxuries. Uh, and that's a world which I find frightening. You know, we've been there and it doesn't work. Um, and it isn't just that it was badly implemented. It just doesn't work. I think people should be able to continue to get rich. So you need to keep a market. Now, firstly, the level of basic may not involve turning left on an airplane, because perhaps by definition, only a minority of people can turn left on an airplane, can stay in luxury hotels and so on. But the level of basic is going to be pretty good. It's going to be better than, say, a middle class American has today. And for most people in the world, that's going to be a huge improvement. And that's possible because we've got automation, we've got virtually free energy, and we've got uh, much more efficient production using AI. Um, but there will be luxuries like turning left on aircraft, owning original Vermeers, owning original Aston Martin DB5s. And if you are smart, hardworking or lucky, as has always been the case, you'll find a way to create value that isn't available to most people. And that might be through creating art. Uh, it might be through creating new ideas, new dreams. It probably will be creating new ideas one way or another, uh, whether it be intellectual property. Well, it will, it will be intellectual property. What sort of intellectual property? We can't even begin to imagine now, I should admit, I, I think. Mm -hmm. So I see some people getting rich, other people staying rich, and everybody else being what we today would regard as rich, they will regard as being normal. And it should be, it should be pretty good. It should be, it should be very satisfying for, for most people. So these ideas, I think that's a great point. Like we're going to be adding value to the global economy or the, the world at large through ideas. And then in your vision, the three pieces are going to help us execute that in a way that we cannot even imagine right now, right? It's like the, the low cost of energy, the efficiency from AI, and uh, sorry, I forgot. The, 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 automation, is, the automation is automation. the first blank, yeah. There we go. So, so basically it's like if you have a brilliant idea that someone will pay for, then you're going to get rich. And all of these people are going to be paying for things because they're getting this universal basic income. And so they're gonna, so it's like a large, the majority of the population is, is sitting here at this very nice, comfortable state and they still have money to spend on their Starbucks and their whatever it is that they like. So if you create a better Starbucks, potentially you're going to be able to get rich. And that's the, the capitalistic portion of your, your view. Yeah, yeah. Or if you create a, a piece of music that everybody loves because it's genuinely expressive of, you know, what some people would call soul and I would call something other than soul. Yeah, okay. So this is really, this is really interesting to dive into because there is this part of me, like you just were talking about, how do we, we're doing an experiment right now and on this universal basic income. 
and the the debt that is piling up is scary. And you feel that it's not going to be so scary when we're just giving out money with the universal basic income if we can capture these three pillars. Yeah, because then everything that you need for a very good standard of living becomes almost almost free. Uh-huh. So then the economic uh-huh. transfer isn't onerous. Mm-hmm. So then, and the owners of all of these different ideas or the owners of the, uh, of the things that are, are making people rich, like if I start the next Amazon or if I start the next Starbucks, that's going to be something like I, I guess where, where I'm seeing a bit of, of problems in, in my mind is, will we not need to know how to program things in order to realize our ideas? Do you mean in the production process of the goods and services that everybody will consume? Yeah, yeah. so if, uh, imagine I have an idea and I want to take advantage of these three pillars. Will I not need to be a subject matter expert in these things in order to make my dream a reality? That's a good question. I, d- I don't know. Uh, I suspect not, because I think, for instance, if you have an idea for how to make a better self-driving car, you come up with some really genuinely innovative notion. I would imagine, in the world as I imagine it, there's a few people running each of the self-driving car companies. There'll probably be half a dozen because that's the way that these large industries tend to pan out, six or so major players around the world. And you go to one of them and you say, I think you should tweak this parameter, you know, make X, Y. And they say, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Um, And you've had the conversation in the right way, so you haven't given away all the IP in the initial conversation. Uh, They say, right, you know, we'll give you 1% of every car that we make with this parameter tweak. And uh, um, that generates your your wealth. the sorry, my machine is, uh, is is talking to me unhelpfully, um, <laughs> and, and there's a very small number of humans involved in that process. Almost all of the process of implementing that parameter change is handled by machines. Mm. And you spoke about how you expect us to spend our time learning, and I wondered about if our universal basic needs are covered and we are going to be learning, we're going to be learning from, I imagine, how a lot of us are learning right now, which is through YouTube or something to that effect, online learning. And so I just wonder, what would we learn about if we didn't, because right now a lot of stuff that I learn about is for my job, right? So what are we going to be learning about? Uh, I hope that people will learn languages. And I say that because I'm learning Spanish. Uh, I spend half my time in Spain and I love the country and I find learning the language, even though I don't actually need to learn it because Google Translate is so impressive, I can get by without speaking a word of it. But 
learning the language, chatting to the people that I meet in Spain is so rewarding uh, that I think a lot, a lot of what we'll do uh, will be that kind of learning. I should also say, I don't think that we will ever stop working. Uh, I think we'll stop doing jobs. And the difference is that the work we do, we won't be paid for. So people will do work in the sense of they will uh, look after the elderly, look after the sick, um, and pursue science and pursue art, that, that sort of work. Um, so it actually, in, in a way, maybe the world may look less different than you might think. Um, it's just the economic flows would be very different. And you asked earlier whether I had a plan. So I sketched out a possible optimistic end state. The plan is how we get from here to there. And this one is a bit surprising. I think it's going to happen automatically. I think automation is inevitable. The main thing we need to do is hurry it up and welcome it. Uh, the progression of energy costs down the cost curve towards zero is already happening. And the implementation of AI is beginning uh, in, in industries beyond, beyond tech. The main thing, I, the main job I think we have to do is to make sure that enough people are aware of where we're going and believe that there is a possible, likely good outcome that we don't all panic. We've just, we're, in, we're still in a populist wave at the moment, um, some major populist right-wing wave. We might be heading into a left-wing populist wave and we're seeing how bad that is for us. Mm. And it's frankly trivial compared to the populist wave we might have if most of the world wakes up one day and says, oh, we're all going to be unemployed in five to ten years and there's no good outcome. The populist wave that that will cause will be truly scary. Yeah, I mean, you can argue that a lot of this populist wave that we're going through right now is due to the fact that there has been so many job losses of from automation or from factories being moved overseas. And so you're seeing that part of society lashing out. Yes, uh, that does get argued. And I guess probably that is um, the major concern for a lot of people. But my impression is that that's not the major driver for this current wave of populism. It's more about a, a reaction against the triumphal march of liberalism. This may sound a bit odd, but since the 80s, the world has changed unrecognisably. And I, I've, I've lived through this change. Um, you know, women are not any longer expected to just sit in the kitchen and uh, women rightly expect a place in the boardroom. Gays don't anymore expect to be beaten up routinely and they expect to have equal rights. And the same is true of people of colour. And these are great things, in my opinion. Um, there are aspects of those changes which a lot of people feel really uncomfortable about. And I think that most of the current right-wing populist wave is a reaction against those things. Uh, populism is always, it, or by definition, it is political leaders saying to a section of society, a big section of society, you used to have a better time. An elite, a metropolitan elite, has stolen that your birthright and we, the populist leaders, are going to hand it back to you. 
there's all sorts of ironies involved in it because the populist leaders are usually incompetent, corrupt, and they almost always are part of the metropolitan elite themselves. Uh, and they certainly cannot deliver a return to a better world because there wasn't a better world in the past. But that's just the way that's just the way it goes. It sounds like you're talking about my old president. I am going to say nothing. <laughs> so that is a is a very valid point though the idea of the populace revolting when they wake up and it doesn't look good for them and people come out of the woodwork and say hey look where we're going is a shithole we need to get back to these better times and these better times are when we were in the factories doing all our own work or whatever it is that they sling and so there is where I wonder how can we make sure that doesn't happen? How can we make sure there is no populist revolt like that? Because it seems like that could be very detrimental, yeah. right? And, and then on top of that, the, which again, oh, maybe I'll ask this as my next question, but just so it's planted in your mind is the idea of the government actually taking measures to stifen or uh, to cripple this innovation and make sure that it doesn't happen because they're afraid of it. Mm. So I think the way you avoid the, um, the panic, the populist, uh, that populist wave, is by creating a conventional wisdom that we are heading towards this brilliant new world, this, this world of fully automated luxury capitalism. And it's a big cultural change to establish that as, a, as conventional wisdom. We're nowhere near it. You know, the majority of people don't think about this stuff. Of the small minority who do, most think it won't happen, uh, mm -hmm. partly because it's too terrifying to think about, and especially if you're running one of the tech companies that might make it happen. Uh, and of the small number, of the small number who think it is likely to happen um, and do think about it, they think universal basic, most of them think that universal basic income is a magic solution. Um, and I think, you know, all those, those myths need to be peeled away. So it's a big job of uh, creating a new conventional wisdom. Um, what should governments do? Well, firstly, be honest about the possibility that automation is coming. Now, it isn't coming in the next five years. You know, we're not going to have machines which can do almost all the jobs that we humans can do in five years' time or in 10 years' time. Because the, the people who say it's not going to happen, who say it's the Luddite fallacy, they have a point. And their point is we've had automation for many centuries and it hasn't created lasting widespread unemployment. There's loads and loads of jobs which we used to do which don't exist anymore. You know, pulling plows around first got handed to horses and then it got handed to machines. Um, going around and um, lighting gas lights in street lights in the evening, uh, manning lifts as they went up and down in buildings. All those jobs have been automated. As long as there are some jobs that machines can't do, then there will be lots of jobs for humans. Um, but my claim is that there will become a time, there will come a point when machines can do almost everything that humans can do. I mean, by definition, that you know, a majority of humans' jobs are, are being done by machines. So, 
governments, I think, should encourage us all to take that question seriously. They've got their plates full at the moment. I don't expect them to do it now. And I think we've probably got another 10 years before it's inescapably obvious to everybody that this is coming. In this 10 years, I think we need to make that, we, we, we need to move towards that new conventional wisdom. And then you ask about uh, governments who say, well, this is all too horrible. We don't want any part of it. We're going to stop it. Some governments will try that and they will find that their economies become woefully uneconomic. Um, everybody gets poorer and one way or another, they will change course, either because they have an attack of common sense or because they have a revolution, uh, because their people are just getting desperately poor and looking at what's happening over the border where they're not resisting these changes and everybody's getting richer. Mm. A bit of a tangent, but when you talked about someone manning the lift, it, it brought me back to New York and there are still those jobs in some buildings in New York and it's so nice when you get that. <laughs> And so maybe there will be some of these for nostalgic purposes, I guess. Yeah, but that... they're not they're not manning lifts. What they're doing is uh, it, that's professional pampering. You know, they're, they're yeah. professional flatterers. And that's, <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to say this, but I think it's a bit demeaning to both parties. Uh, and I would like to think that robots would do that rather than humans. Hmm. I, I just think in a world where robots do everything, the occasional human contact will be nice to have as like a surprise. Yeah, but you know, in a ro world where robots do all the jobs, there'll be plenty of human contact. We will all be free to spend more time socializing um, and doing work <laughs> if projects we want, together. Though, only if we want to socialize. Which we do. We? You know, I mean, look at what's happening now. Um, everybody you speak to in lockdown is saying, I mean, I don't know where you are, Demetrius, but I'm in England and everybody in England is told to stay home. And uh, everybody's bored out of their skulls. You know, they, there's a great joke. Uh, you know, it goes, um, a man walked into a pub. Lucky bastard. <laughs> that's, you know, that, that sums up the world at the moment. We're desperate to have more human contact. That's what we are. We are social animals. We've evolved that way. Hmm. Yeah, I think about the, the introvert who has to go to work and has to be around people and have human contact. But if that same introvert didn't need to, would they make the effort to do it on their own? That's what I mean, like if we mm -hmm. want to. So the occasional human at the cash register as a nostalgic purpose might be nice every now and again, but I do see your point on it is degrading for them if they're, unless it's like their passion to be there <laughs> to be a, to be a cash to be a cash, cashier cashier yeah which... I, I did that job for a, a year when i was much much younger and uh, it's not terribly ennobling <laughs> and the level of human contact you get uh, between cashiers and, and customers is is not great you know <laughs> i think we can do better than that yeah some some jobs will will come and i guess that's the the main argument right and what you were saying is that Jobs come. Uh, you called it a paradox. I can't remember what the paradox was or you called it the uh, something I can't remember. Sorry, but that, okay, the jobs get taken from this area and then they get redistributed into this area. And everyone says, I think the main argument is that they're not getting redistributed equally. So you're losing 5,000 jobs here, but you're only getting another 1,000 here. 
So, but that's not really true. You know, uh, prior to the pandemic, the UK and the US were pretty close to full employment. Um, if it was true that automated automation reduced the number of jobs, we would be close to total unemployment because we've had automation for a very long time. Um, there was probably a lot more unemployment in the early stages of the industrial revolution than there are now. Um, you know, automation wipes out huge classes of jobs, but it creates many more new ones until it doesn't because machines can do everything that humans could do for money. Uh, yeah. So uh, let's jump back to this piece about the, uh, the cultural part and the wisdom that needs to come and I couldn't help but think like we need some really good marketers to lead us through to show us or to at least sell us on this idea that it's not going to be all shit and right now I feel like what we have this might just be me being very pessimistic but whenever I look at any tech company I do not feel like I'm going to place the future of the world in their hands. So when you think about that and you think about, okay, if you ask the average person, hey, in 20 years, there's not going to be jobs. How do you feel about that? There is like a running, I guess, ideology that the world is going to be collapsing if that happens. So these marketers or these, this wisdom that we need, how do you see that getting out? Through the usual process of different ideas, different viewpoints, struggling against each other until the right one wins. Uh, and sometimes, I mean, that's always a messy process and, and sometimes it fails. And this time we can't afford it to fail. Just on the subjects of the tech giants, the tech lash, which I guess is three or four years old now, I, I sometimes think the tech lash really is a magnificent mind hack by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, Murdoch and people like him are furious that Google and Facebook in particular have stolen a lot of his advertising. And that's not really true. They create a different form of advertising, which is much more efficient and advertisers prefer it. And also an awful lot of the people who advertising Google and Facebook are smaller companies who could never afford to advertise in, in newspapers and on telly before. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there's been this constant assault on the integrity uh, and the effect of the tech giants. And I think a lot of it's really unfair. You know, if you think about what do the founders and the senior people of Google want? Are they really rapacious, money-grabbing capitalists in the mold of um, Vanderbilt and Leland Stanford and, you know, the, 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 the steel and coal barons of the early industrial revolution. No, I don't think they are. They're fantastically rich. I don't really think they care about making more money. I think what they care about is making the future accelerate and get here quicker. Um, I think we're in an odd period in which the people running these tech giants are probably more philanthropic than capitalists have ever been, really. Um, so I think the tech lash is a bit of a shame, but I know that's a, an unpopular minority opinion. With regard to how we can get this mindset change that, that I think we need to happen, 
I don't think it will start until more people take seriously the idea that automation leading to joblessness, permanent widespread joblessness is coming. Um, that's going to take another five years or so. Uh, and I think self-driving cars will be maybe the, the canary in the coal mine. You know, it, they're, they're coming in the next five, maybe 10, but probably five years. Most people are going to start seeing fully automated cars, nobody sitting in the front, taking people around in, in, in cities. Um, and that's going to be a huge wake-up call. So then there'll be a really big debate about the future of automation. And, you know, if you think about the various ways it could pan out, quite a lot of them are dystopias. No work for most people, everybody living on scraps, a few rich people own everything. Exactly. We can't afford to go there. That's just completely unacceptable. Wind the clock back, get rid of the technology. That's not doable either. So something like this vision of, of an automated future where uh, jobs, uh, jobs are done by robots and humans live a life of leisure, something like that has to be the future. And I think something like fully automated luxury capitalism will win out as an idea because it's the best idea. Now, you know, I think that I may be wrong. I'll be arguing that case. If I'm right and that case, that view wins, then people maybe will start to be excited about the future again which I really hope people do become because I'm, I'm very tired of this constant pessimism and you know, this idea that technology is driving the world into a, a terrible state and we're all going to boil, the, you know, we're boiling the world. I, th I think the world has improved immeasurably since the start of the Industrial Revolution. We're now not in the fourth Industrial Revolution, we're in the Information Revolution. And that, I think, is going to improve the world even more, much, much more than the, information, than, than the Industrial Revolution did. Well, you speak of this information revolution, and I want to go back to the point you made about the tech giants and the tech lash, I like that uh, name, and how there, there are, if we look at uh, the owners of Google, it may be, it may be easier to think, yeah, they're in, you know, they have the greater good in their head. They're trying to, to get us to this place. And then you look at, when, when I think about that, I just think about Facebook. And even if Zuckerberg has the greater good in his, his vision or his intentions are for the greater good and accelerating us to a place uh, that is better, what he is doing right now or what Facebook, I should say, is doing right now is inciting attempted coups, right? Uh, with Maybe. I mean, do you think that Facebook did that more than Fox News? Personally, I, thought, I think Fox News is far more guilty of that. You know, actually, a surprising mm -hmm. amount of this comes down to Murdoch versus the tech giants. And not just Murdoch, but people like Murdoch. And of those two, I blame Murdoch much, much more. So you feel that Murdoch has much more of a a reason for... Well, I could see the argument on why he wouldn't want the tech giants to uh, come out ahead because it's basically rendering his all of his companies useless, right? Like I no longer watch television. All of my friends don't watch television and when was the last time we read a newspaper no everything now it's not that we don't watch things we watch movies or we watch netflix or we watch youtube or we read blogs uh 
but that is, it's been a shift of attention. I still have a really hard time though thinking that, and please prove me wrong on this, but I really feel like Facebook and the way that our information is sold and the way that our data is just freely out there for anyone to use is not a healthy way of having society. Okay, so I, I'm not an expert in Facebook. I don't actually use it, uh, and I don't care about Facebook one way or the other. My impression is that Zuckerberg is genuine when he says his goal in life is to connect, connect people. I think that probably is what he's trying to do. Um, I'm not at all convinced that Facebook has um, been the driving force in the current wave of populism, uh, partly because it started, the populist wave started well before Facebook came along. Uh, it started essentially as a reaction to the election of Barack Obama. Uh, the Tea Party, the, the Tea Party as a subset of the Republican Party, was was a response to the election of Obama, um, and it just got angrier and angrier from there. And the flames were fanned, I think, more by Fox News than by anything else. Uh, do I think that our data is being missold? I think. If we all really believed that, we would all use DuckDuckGo and social media, which aren't Facebook. And yet we don't, most of us. Uh, and we have a free choice to do it. So it seems to me that actually most of us don't actually care about it. And we talk about it a bit, but we don't really care about it. And how much are we being damaged by our data being sold? I mean, I'm sure, I know for a fact, I provide tons of data about myself uh, to Facebook and to other tech giants, and then that data is aggregated with other people's data and sold to or, or used to help companies advertise. My data, my individual data, is utterly useless on its own. It has to be aggregated with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of other people's data to become valuable. So this idea that we're in a surveillance capitalist state, uh, which Shoshana Zuboff has been peddling for a while, I think it's completely false. I'm not surveilled. Google doesn't care what I personally do. What it cares about is what a whole load of people like me do. The upshot of that is that a whole load of people like me get messages from companies which might be useful to me. I don't find that to be an injuring process. I haven't yet seen the ad which has injured me. So again, that's a minority opinion and I if, if, you know, <laughs> a whole lot of people who call themselves AI ethicists will hate me for saying this, but they already hate me anyway, so I don't care. <laughs> Which is amazing because we are on an AI ethics podcast, and so <laughs> you're making a lot of friends out there. Yeah, <laughs> people are going to be putting it in the comments. But the, I mean, I I have to push back a little bit on that sure. uh, being just a. I feel like a lot of us, how, how you mentioned. We don't, uh, a lot of people say that they care, but they don't actually, right? Because otherwise we would be using DuckDuckGo and su such different networks. But for me, I feel like there's, the majority of people don't know how their data is being used. Even people that say they know or that are, are into this kind of stuff, we don't know what Facebook or Google or any of these social networks or any... But, but you any do, of, you do, you do know, we all know. We all know there's a trade-off. I give you my data and you give me free stuff. And I like that trade-off. 
Yeah, exactly. But we don't know what they're doing when they take our data. They say, and like you said, that's a very easy one, like, and uh, a very innocent one where it's like they take our data and then we get shown mountain bikes because we like mountain biking. So that one is very innocent, but we don't know what else is happening behind the scenes. And we do know that artificial intelligence is being trained on enormous amounts of data and we're, they're trying to get us to this place like you speak of that is where the machines can do the jobs, right? And so you have to have a lot of confidence in the way that the people are running these companies in order to say, all right, cool, this is, this is fine, I'm going to let this happen. If you, if you really know what is going on behind the scenes though, are you going to have that confidence? That's what I wonder. And I honestly don't know what is going on behind the scenes. I've never worked at any of these big tech companies, but I do know that I see things in that like Facebook can't, you can buy ads and target certain people and you can make the ads very extreme and very polarizing. And then you can create more of an echo chamber for that. And then you can incite certain states, right? Of, uh, of emotion. And so that's where I'm a little bit like, Ooh, I don't know if it's all gravy. Yeah. I'm not, sure. I'm not saying that, um, everything's rosy in the garden. There's all sorts of problems. Um, there is a, there is a belief and very smart people believe this, that algorithms aren't so much being trained to encourage us all to be more extreme, but it's a kind of inevitable process that they go through because outrage is one of the strongest human emotions. Exactly. And so if exactly. you outrage humans, they'll pay attention more and therefore that's what the algorithms do. It's not malice, a forethought on the part of any organization and certainly not on the part of the machines. It just turns out that making people outraged gets the result that the, corp that the company wants because it creates more attention. Um, I don't find that in my life. I don't know many people. In fact, I don't actually know anybody <clears throat> who sits at a computer allowing a social media to make them more and more outraged. I see outraged people storming the Capitol, among other things. Those people have got ideas in their heads, which I don't think were put there by social media. I think they were put there by Rupert Murdoch. Um, well, I, I, could, I could be can, wrong. Yeah, I don't think we can say it was one or the other. I think it's a, like, when you, uh, we've probably all heard this, right? That marketers, you need to see a Coca-Cola ad like 33 times before you actually go and buy a Coke or something like that. Or you need all these different touch points. And so it's not that, okay, Rupert Moda, Murdoch uh, and you watching Fox News once or twice made you storm the Capitol. It's that you were watching Fox News, so then you subscribe to some of the people that are on Fox News and you have them on your Facebook feed. And then because you're uh, following those people, then you're also getting ads that are targeted at you like this. And then you're, you're getting, you decide to go deeper down the rabbit hole and you're watching videos on YouTube, which, and so it's all these different touch points, right? I'm not saying that the, each individual, and like you're, you're mentioning, it's like they're not, 
trying to do that, right? Like the, it's not Zuck's intention to do that, but now that he knows this is possible and that his outrage, like the outrage of people or by showing them outrageous things, or let me take a step back, by training machine learning models to show more outrage, then it creates this state. Sorry, my daughter's running around here. <laughs> the, by training the machine learning models to create more outrage, then it, it inevitably adds more eyeballs onto their whatever it is, their yeah, yeah. platform. You, you, can, you can definitely make the case that Zuckerberg and his people know that they are accelerating outrage and they should be doing something about it. Put yourself in their shoes. Doing something about it means censoring the information that's available on their platforms. Should they be in a position of, of being the censor? They don't want to be, and I don't think they should be. I don't think a private citizen should be censoring what you are, you and I are allowed to say in what has become the de facto town square. That, I think, should be the, the job of some government organisation. Now, you could argue that, that Facebook should pay for that, and I'd be very happy with that proposal. Um, and, and it seems to me to be a dereliction of duty by governments that they haven't stepped up to do that. Mm. Uh, you know, we should have, in, in this country, we have a thing called Ofcom, which uh, is responsible for making sure that um, public service broadcasters remain um, balanced and fair and so on. Uh, and, and we should probably have something like that for social media, but it should be run by governments and it should be, it could, it could be paid for by Facebook. I, I have no problem with that at all. Um, and there was another point I was going to make, which I have forgotten, but it will probably come back. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so then I don't think your viewpoints are so outrageous as you say. Oh, I think dear. there are. <laughs> uh, we're not going Sorry, to Sorry, we, we know that outrage causes outrage. attention. Yeah. So I've just, you, you've, you've just pulled the rug away from a whole load of attention we had. <laughs> Although basically nobody's going to watch this episode. Oh, yes, they will. <laughs> that's, <right. laughs> that's, that's it. That's brilliant. Now, the main thing that I think, the main question that lingers in my mind is knowing that there is all of this chaos around how we're looking at these big companies right now and how they are the ones that are leading, they're on the bleeding edge of AI. Right. If you are going to make any case for who is doing AI, it's going to be all of your Facebooks and your Googles. And, uh, and so the trust there is what I really am wondering about. The trust and the ability to, to spin this marketing message like you were talking about to be able to tell people, hey, we're not going to have jobs because... Uh, Facebook and Google are going to create these AI that do everything for us, so you won't have to worry about it. But don't worry, it's all good, right? That I have a hard time seeing the public get on board with. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the tech giants have been somewhat lead-footed when it comes to the tech lash. They haven't really made the case for their for them being a positive force in society as opposed to a negative force. They've kind of just, they seem to me to kind of sat back and let it happen. Uh, and I guess they're lobbying, lobbying crazily at government level to avoid major nasty things being done at government level, but yeah. they, they haven't fought back against tech lash, which is a shame. So you're right, I don't see them persuading us all that the future is going to be rosy. Uh, I think, 
you know, Techlash will probably wane as all these waves do. You know, they, they, they roll over and then they roll back. And also, it isn't by any means going to be only the tech giants that introduce AI throughout the economy. You could argue that AI so far has... What, what's happened since the Big Bang in 2012 when machine learning was introduced um, successfully is AI has made money for the first time. Uh, and it's made a lot of money. And the money it's made has mostly been by taking over the advertising industry. But the advertising industry is a, a very small part of the overall economy. And AI needs to move across transportation, energy, yeah. construction, retail, everything. And it will. And I don't believe that Amazon, you know, that, that G-Mafia, um, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Intel, and Amazon are going to take over whole of the economy. I think that uh, BP and Tesla and GM and um, Walmart and so on are still going to be there as huge companies and, and there'll be other companies that come along. And AI will penetrate the whole of the economy. So it's going to be all business people who are going to sooner or later, I hope, be telling the rest of us, it's okay, we can have a glorious future. Uh, of fully automated luxury capitalism. And here's how it happens, not just yeah. the tech giants. But I do think for their own sake, apart from anything else, the tech giants ought to get a lot better at dealing with tech lash. Yeah, we're going to need some I've good marketers. Sorry, I've remembered the other thing I was going to say about the, the yeah, tech sorry. giants. Um, the other thing that they get blamed for, which strikes me as being very unfair, is, is not paying enough taxes. I'm sure they don't pay enough taxes. But who sets the rules for taxes? Governments. Governments have a monopoly over taxes. And for yeah. governments to say, we set the taxes and you're not paying enough taxes, seems ridiculous to me. You know, they, they should change the rules. It's in their power. So they should yeah. change the rules. <laughs> Great point. The, the piece about the businesses leading us forward and the businesses are going to be the ones that are speaking up because they're seeing what is happening and they're seeing this wave coming is really interesting. They're going to be the ones that are coming out and saying, we need to figure out what we're going to do here because the wave is coming. The AI, the automation, the job losses are an inevitable reality. And you mentioned within 10 years, you feel that that is going to be something that we cannot turn a blind eye to. It's yeah, I think my, my hunch and you know, the timeline in tech, in futurism and in tech, timing is everything. You know, mm. there's lots and lots of good ideas which just don't work because the, it's the wrong time. And we, Amara's law is very powerful. We, we always overestimate what tech and anything else will do in the short term and underestimate what it will do in the longer term. Um, mm. But my guess is that 10 years from now, it will be painfully obvious that automation really is going to cause massive widespread unemployability. Uh, and, and so at that point, we really need to have a new conventional wisdom. It might be 20 years. It might be five. I think it's more likely to be 10 to 20 that that realization is, is, is in place. Interesting. And it reminds me of a talk that I had with one of the, uh, a woman that worked at Spotify, Sydney, and she was in charge of uh, the, the robotics processing automation, I think is what they call the RPA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and her argument for this, because I came and I, of course, said, oh, okay, so 
<laughs> how do you sleep at night knowing that you're just making these jobs obsolete? And her, what she said, and I think that this is something that a lot of people argue for or they say that okay it's not going to be as bad as you think because all we're doing is we're getting rid of the repetitive tasks and so that is opening up these employees to be able to spend time on things that are on the to-do list but they never really get to and we always have you know a never-ending to-do list but it's those things that are the most time-consuming and the most urgent that we end up doing first and then we don't get to the other stuff that might need a little bit more thought, it might need a little bit more time, and it's not as urgent. And so her argument was that we're going to spend more time or we're going to have more time to spend on that when we automate away all of these low-level tasks. Mm -hmm. I get the feeling that you don't feel the same way. Oh, I think she's, I think she's largely right um, in the short term. Uh, so, so some people will have the tasks that they currently perform automated by RPA and they will keep their current jobs and their current jobs will get more interesting. They'll, the, the company will move them up the value chain and will have them do more interesting things. But I think it's also true that a lot of people will simply lose their jobs because the RPA will replace what they're doing and the company can't think of a way of using those people more gainfully. And so it loses, it, it decides to shed the cost of employing them. So... That's not a happy position for those people. You know, automation in the short term for a lot of people is extremely uncomfortable. Having to go out and find another job because your job got automated isn't fun. Uh, we need to make it fun. That's a hard thing to do. But if we're going to get faster and faster automation, which I think is inevitable, then people are going to find themselves out of a job more and more often, more and more, more and more quickly. And ideally, they won't have to find a new company. The company will, or they will, find something more interesting to do with their time. Uh, as, as but, but over the long term, over the medium term, rather, it does, it does apply. Uh, they, they move from doing the boring, repetitive thing. Hello. <laughs> she just wanted to jump in. Yeah, say she hi. should, yeah. I mean, she's part of the generation that's going to be uh, living through this. Affected, yeah, more, the more most. Than us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... In the longer term, uh, people will end up doing more interesting jobs, but the transition could be very painful. Well, I think about the, like the flux and the fluidity that will happen. I'm thinking about a big company like Spotify, right? And I actually spoke with another company, like a head of AI uh, a while ago about how one of this woman's big initiatives was that she was taking people whose jobs were at risk and then they were putting them into a two-month boot camp and they were retraining them to become machine learning engineers. And so there is a whole side of this that I wouldn't even get into right now, which is I don't think you can become a machine learning engineer in two months. Yeah, sounds But let's, let's just think about it in a perfect world that you do and the fluidity of, like you are talking about, the company, right? It's some of these jobs, they're, they're getting moving up the totem pole because you're going to get to start doing more interesting things. And then the jobs that are at risk, then you go and they get put into um, 
machine learning engineering roles or whatever, it feels to me like we're going to be eroding away so many jobs that there are going to be a finite number of career choices that we need to, that a large percentage of the population is going to be fighting for. Or is I, that I just a... No, I don't think that's true. I think that um, what we all do with our lives is going to change a lot as the information revolution unfolds. Uh, one thing that is inevitable, I think, is we're going to spend more and more time in virtual reality. And that has mm. to be built and maintained and managed. So I think a whole load of people are going to find jobs in that vast new industry. Uh, I think the lesson of automation in the past is that it creates wealth and wealth creates demand. And I think that will continue to be the case until machines can do most or all of the jobs that we do. They're a long way off that yet. I think they will get there in 20 to 40 years. Um, and then we need to really worry. Well, actually, we need to worry before then. But until then, I mean, think about the, the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, almost everybody was a subsistence farmer. A small number of people were uh, royalty or nobility. Uh, a small number of people were professional soldiers, professional clerics. Almost everybody was a subsistence farmer. Now, in um, the most developed economies, one to two percent of people are farmers. Yeah, they're not in, unemployed. Everybody else, they're doing other jobs, like the jobs that you and I do, which would be unimaginable to those subsistence farmers. I think the same thing will keep happening until the machines can do everything that we can do for money. Hmm. So, I want to wrap up here, but there is one question that I have as you're talking about developing countries and and the countries that are still developing, do you see this wave hitting them later? Or is it going to be something that... Because that's another thing that I think is going to be really fascinating to watch how it plays out. And you watch how it plays out in the rich nations and then you can see maybe in 10 years or 15 years, it plays out again in these developing nations? Yeah, I think, and I'm not sure it'll be that, I think it'll be less of a gap than that. But yes, I think the, the shift to a post-work society will start in America, probably. Uh, it's the most innovative country in the world. Um, it will happen very quickly in Europe and other places and in China and in Asia. Um, and it will roll across the world very quickly. Uh, because it will be driven by economics, and economics is a kind of irresistible force, uh, it'll be driven by automation, the reducing price of energy, and the increasing, the increasing efficiency of AI. It simply won't be economic to, to hire people to do jobs. Clearly, people in um, less developed countries cost less to employ than people in developed countries. So the, 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 the cost curve of of AI and machine work has to go further to, to create that unemployability worldwide, but it'll happen very fast. And the analogy I like is, is the smartphone, which was kind of invented in 2008. And within 10 years, everybody in the world had a smartphone. Not everybody, mm. but you know, yeah. every, every people, large, large numbers of people all around the world 
you go to a train station in Kinshasa, everybody's going to be glued to their smartphones, just like they are in London and New York. Fascinating. An optimistic way of looking at this is that um, rich people get to be guinea pigs for new technology. Uh, they, they use it, they, they start adopting it at a time when it's expensive and doesn't work very well. They allow the companies to figure out how to make it work properly and then everybody else gets to use it by the time it's established. Mm. And that happens faster and faster. Well, this has been an incredible chat. You've opened my eyes to many different pieces of this puzzle and I thank you for it. I really think that we should be sounding the alarm right now uh, because I look at it a little bit like what's the worst that could happen if we start talking about this now and then it doesn't come for another 50 years. Well, that's not that bad, right? Yeah. But yeah. if we start talking about this now and then it comes in five years, we're all going to be holding on to our hats. And it's going to be figuring bumpy. Out, yeah, it's going to be very bumpy. So uh, I think the, the risk far outweighs the rewards of, of not talking about this, right? This needs to be said. Yeah. So Callum, I got one last question. Mm -hmm. Are you a robot? <laughs> of course, can't you tell? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on here. And I, I implore everyone that is out there listening, let us know in the comments if you agree, disagree, whatever you think about this episode. It has been my immense pleasure to talk with you, Callum. And hopefully we can do it again soon, maybe in a few years, see where we're at with this. Maybe things have changed drastically and we have new theories or... We're sticking with these ones. Yeah, well, that'd be fun. It's been it's been great fun, Demetrius. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Take care.